Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to AI Movie Night. I'm your host, Joe Simpson, and tonight we'll be discussing the 1968 classic, Planet of the Apes. I'm lucky enough to have two great guests to discuss it with. Firstly, I have the returning Martin Fitzgerald, one half of the excellent Rufus Martin's album and JFK Clubs. How are you doing, Martin? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks once again for coming on. This is the first film I've done then which has, hasn't got Kevin Costner in it. It is, it is. I, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I've got a feeling your knowledge will dip considerably with the lack of Costner in there, so it'll be interesting don't, don't, to see. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thanks for coming on. I'm also no lucky enough to be joined by the host of the main Anfield Index podcast, making his debut on movie night, Trevor Downing. How are you doing, Trev? Yeah, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks very much for coming on, mate. Um, I look forward to hearing both your views. And um, obviously, it's a film I love, and I know you're both are big fans yourself. So I look forward to hearing what you both think about it. As always, there's so much to cover, so I'm just going to get straight into it. Uh, my usual question to start off, uh, when and where you first saw it and what you thought of it at the time, please, Trev. Ah, well, yeah, I suppose I was probably around 12, 13. The local TV channel were showing uh, the whole sequence of the of the films um, on Friday night at about half nine, ten o'clock. So it was a, re- a kind of a treat for myself and my brother. And we used to, uh, you know, gather up all the goodies and, and, and we really look forward to it. You know, my, my, my parents had friends around. So we basically moved the little TV, the little uh, remote control into the room. And it was it was a whole big occasion. But the movie itself, the first one in particular, I just pretty much dumbfounded me, I'll be honest with you. Um, it led to all sorts of um, pre-stoner conversations um, that, you, you know, that would would 
have been far better facilitated by the the aid of some sort of um, uh, herbs of some sort. But uh, <laughs> it, it, it left it left me uh, just an indelible impact on me. Just uh, not only for the ideas in it, which were obviously kind of um, mind blowing in and of themselves. When you're that age and you're kind of semi sentient human, you know you you want to engage with that type of thought. And I read lots of comics. I was an avid reader and. 2000 AD was a big one of mine. So science fiction was obviously a very big thing as well. And, you know, the, the ideas in that were massive, but it also had a big impact on me in terms of, I remember thinking that's the kind of stuff I'd like to do. And I kind of have dallied with it and tallied with it over, over the time, over the, 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 the years I've done quite a bit of acting and it really, it was one of the, the formative things for me actually on a lot of levels. That, that's interesting that acting aspect I think is I could be wrong Ian I, I almost certainly am but I think it, from what I've read and obviously just watching it itself it's, I think it's one of the first films where that level of makeup's been able to be used but the actors have still felt fulfilled and felt able to give you know a distinguished and separate performance that, that stands out as themselves and you know just some of the acting in it, I'm just a massive fan of, and obviously a massive fan of it in so many other ways as well. What about yourself, Martin? Uh, I think I was I was probably maybe kind of late teens, and it, I think I think it was on a, a, a sort of weekend, maybe or maybe some sort of holiday period. And um, you know, my my kind of memory of kind of watching Planet of the Apes for the first time was that this was an okay film mm-hmm. and then the ending happened <laughs> and it, and it made me just think about the film in a sort of completely different way. And I think, I mean, obviously we are going to, we are going to kind of get on to um, the, uh, you know, twist, but I, I think, I, I think possibly only up there with kind of psycho. It's the, it's the only film that I know of where the sort of twist, you know, makes everything that came before not only better, but it makes you want to watch the film again. And then every single repeat viewing of the film, you know, becomes a much better experience because you know what happens at the end. And I think sometimes when there's films which rely heavily on a sort of big twist, that it's almost like the punchline to a joke. And it, and it, and if you think of like a film like The Sixth Sense, which I think it's hard to watch that film again and again and again because you know because of of sort of that particular twist. Whereas I think with The Planet of the Apes, it's I think the film's like good. It's kind of okay. It's pretty sort of slow. But you know, I just I just kind of watched it a couple of days ago again, and and when you watch it again, knowing what you know, it just makes everything entirely different. I think so. I, I, I just have a kind of memory of just of kind of being entertained by a film. I didn't think it was a great film, but then the ending happened, and it kind of changed everything. Yeah, um, I know exactly what you mean. There, I think. Uh... You, you, you've called that right there. The, the the end, and as you say, sometimes this doesn't happen. It works in, in the opposite direction. But 
the ending elevates every single bit of the film and, and adds so much more to so many of the lines and just so many of the things that are happening in the different scenes. And uh, I wonder, I remember seeing something recently where apparently the DVD, <laughs> the DVD has a photo of the, the Statue of Liberty does, bit yeah. on the front. It <laughs> and it's just like, come on, at least make the efforts. I know, I know obviously it's been used in The Simpsons and stuff, but at least try and hide the ending from people who haven't seen it because it does you know it does really it does make such an impact to, to your viewing i think i um, watched it i always bang on about this but i think the same bit of magic has been lost from films and tv to some extent anyway in terms of we can access pretty much anything whenever we want and i think i watched it as a teenager i just stumbled across it on a friday night i think on bbc one and I think it may even have already started. And because you had such limited channels, you just if you saw a film on, half of the time you would just give it a chance anyway, just because it was a film. And I, I just remember watching it and really, really enjoying it and being sort of taken away to that place. And then, as you say, when that ending happened, it, the impact on me was massive. It's it just, I, I couldn't believe how how clever it was, how clever a reveal, and and just, as you say, the impact in terms of how it changed the rest of the film was just massive for me anyway, definitely. Um, obviously, you touched on some of this, Martin. It's, it's over 50 years old and still loved by many. It's got, like, you know, the people who love it are, like, hardcore. Obviously, I know you, you wouldn't be one of those people, but I know you, you like the film. What do you think it makes it so well-loved for those people who, who absolutely adore it? I don't, I don't, I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, it's a, I think it's one of those... I don't know if people really love it because it's, like, a science fiction film. Um, I mean, obviously, it's probably a question for Trevor. He was talking about the, the sort of impact that that it sort of had on him in terms of, I guess, some of the philosophy behind the film. It's a really simple film. There's something weird about it. There's something weird about it in the same way that I think there's something a bit weird about Jaws. And the, as time has, has kind of gone on and it's become easier to you know use things like cgi and stuff like that mm. that something's been something's been lost in within films like planet of the apes if you look at that kind of makeup for example they don't really look like apes particularly no. compared to the sort of modern remakes of sort of planet of the apes but in the same way that the shark in jaws doesn't really look like um you know fully functioning shark and even to the point where they couldn't get the shark to work in Jaws, so they just had to represent the shark with those kind of orange boys. There's something within Planet of the Apes where they're not kind of apes, but 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 they're they're kind of just they they become their own thing, yeah. which is sort of and 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 it's it's not really kind of dated within within the sixties. There's a sort of there's a there's a kind of charm about it, I think. But I think also there's it's almost it, it has a sort of look and feel of a of almost like a western. There's lots and lots of wide open spaces in it, and really the film sort of takes place in a what looks like a sort of relatively small village, 
But then all around that, you have these kind of huge sort of vistas where, I think it was filmed in Tenerife, where it just looks amazing. It looks, it looks, I think that's the trick of the film, is it looks otherworldly, but it's obviously Earth. I could only assume that people like it for the same reasons that maybe I like it, which is that it's it's such a good punchline, and it and it makes it makes watching it. I mean, I really enjoyed watching it the other night, and um, it's there's nothing I can really. I think there are times where it doesn't sort of elevate itself to sort of brilliance, but at the same time, there's nothing really about it that annoys me, or I think is kind of wasted within the film. Martin's obviously touched on some of the things there, Trev. Um, obviously, uh, I can tell you're like, obviously from when you were younger and that you got a lot more into the whole sort of, you know, the things that surrounded the film. And, you know, I can tell that you're more of a deeper fan, shall we say, of the film. Why do you think it's been so enduringly loved by so many people? Well, if anything, it's grown on me more as the years have gone on. I, you know, I think... Martin is right to talk about, you know, the impact of the ending. That's sort of the, the one sort of universal thing that everybody can can uh, hang their hat on and say, well, look, there's no taking away from that. But I'll be honest with you, as the years have gone on, it's all the stuff around it that I would prefer. And I've really enjoyed even the most recent viewing of it in preparation for for this to see if there's anything that I'd forgotten and I hadn't. You know, it was one of those movies where even though I've probably only seen it three or four times over over the years, but I can you, you felt like you could recite every line. The thing for me is uh, the the sort of morass of ideas in there. You know, it's 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 remarkable. And um, if anything, and this would be um, Martin was was uh, tra- uh, trawling about looking for something to, to, to say that might be, you know, um, um, a reason why it's not 100% a favourite of his. And the only negative I would say is there's probably too many ideas. I mean, you've got uh ideas of race and caste and slavery and uh church versus state and uh religion versus uh science and you've got all these kind of uh, archetypal uh societal uh discursive points that everybody engages with at some stage if they have a half working brain everybody sort of thinks about them on some level and the the film just engages all of those it just it, it that if, if for me the only thing i would say that's perhaps a weakness is it takes everything and throws everything at the wall there's so much going on there in terms of uh the the societal issues amongst the apes, like I say, the castes, the caste society within the ape civilization itself, the treatment of 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 the humans like like slaves, and there's something about that uh, great um, cornfield scene which we'll come on to, which you know if that doesn't scream, you know the 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 hidey, the hideousness of 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 slavery at you, then then nothing does. It it hits all these kind of tropes and ideas that we can all sort of that resonate with all of us. And like I say, I, I you know it's like a it's like um, do you know you have everyone has a friend who's. A, a kind of a tryhard and, and and really kind of uh, gets into stuff with a with a heart and half and might ne- necessarily always nail it, but you feel affectionately towards them and that's how I feel about this film. It's a it's a clever film and there's no two ways about it. I think it tries a bit too much to be too, too clever and takes on too many ideas, 
but I'm never going to fault anything for that. And when you're, like I say, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, like I was when I revisited it, those ideas are everything to you and you want to examine them and you want to experience them and you want to research them. And uh, it's because of those ideas, of course, yeah, the ending, all the rest of it, but because of those ideas, I think it endures and it's never been more relevant, to be fair, Joe. You think about the orange gibbon that we've got across the water, uh, uh, that's, you know, threatening to um, disrupt mankind. It's uh, That's a parallel right there. No, no, can't, can't argue with that at all. Can't argue with that at all. I think you've hit on something that I... I, I tend to think is one of the reasons it's so well loved. It, it, it's one of the, them films that sort of strides to sort of strides two different sorts of courses. So you you can you can watch it and take in all those things you've mentioned. You know, like um, science versus tradition and racism and caste systems and things like that. As you mentioned, so many different things. You can watch it, take those things in and be thinking about those things. But equally, it works for many, many people just as well without without having, you know, without them doing any of that. Just just as a straight up adventure story. Yeah, 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 yeah. just a, a fun film as well. And I do like that it's got both of them things. And I think certainly for myself, depending on what mood I'm in. I can watch it in either one of those ways. Obviously, most of the time, like most people, you, you, you're watching it in both ways to a certain extent. But sometimes I can just throw it on and I don't I, I don't think about any of those things. I just enjoy it as a straight up fun bit of escapism. But as you say, it does also have that other element that gives it a, for some anyway, an extra an extra depth. One of the things for me as well, uh, it's maybe not as big a deal now that I've seen more films, but when I first watched it, or at least the first couple of times, one of the, the big things about it that really appealed was the character of Taylor and Charlton Heston's performance, because I don't think at that time I'd ever seen someone who I would expect to be the hero of a film the way he is so cynical and you know at times he's he's absolutely horrible at times to some of those fellow astronauts and things and there was something about that that made a, a big impression on me that it's like he wasn't like every other sort of hero you would see in a film of that type and I don't know I just absolutely love the character and the performance so what about yourself Trev what do you think of the character and of course uh, Heston's performance well, look, I mean, <laughs> this is a guy who is sort of, again, as I'm growing up, he's on TV most Sunday afternoons. He's either El Cid or he's Ben-Hur or he's Moses. And he's this sort of mythical um, character in the same way that Marlon Brando has that sort of mythos about him as well. And you just see, there's just people that you see all the time on your TV. And like you say, he he is... Um, a heroic character but in this it's not quite anti-hero but yeah the cynicism is really kind of refreshing and you don't see it coming and yeah he's a complete arse to people like Landon you know he he basically derides Landon tells him he's like a just basically like a NASA a NASA sort of a, a wasp you know a, a good guy a, a, a kind of goody two-shoes best year class but what do you really want? What are you really doing here? And he's questioning everything. But I think there's a, there's a lack of logic to to uh, to Taylor's cynicism. Like he's he's really very much a misanthrope. But 
at the same time, you know, he says, yeah, I'm a seeker, you know, and he, he wants to, he, he does have some sort of thing. And his thing is there's got to be something better than man. And I think, you know, Martin spoke about it earlier on about that, you know, lovely sequence. And I think Schaffner, I read somewhere before that he really intended that that would be a long and drawn out sequence there with the three boys wandering across the desert. And it was it was to set the film up and to get the idea of this uh, pilgrimage almost to this to this place. So the words that come out in that sequence are really important. And when 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 you think about, you know, the things that you said earlier on, Joe, when you think about the little lines that come out and they have added resonance later on. But he's saying there's got to be something better than man out there, <laughs> you know, and. Yeah. It's it's that lovely dramatic irony when you've seen it because you know what's coming and um, you know better than man. Well, that's the whole question of the of the film. Uh, look, Charlton Heston himself, uh, like I say, he is this sort of uh, larger than life character, and you know I, I, you can't separate out the different parts of him. For me, I think Charlton Heston, like I say, I think Ben Hur, I think I think Moses. I think that wonderful cameo did in Wayne's World when he talks about you know that 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 you know that lovely kind of, uh, th- to me that's some of his best work ever. I'll be honest with you because yeah. there's something that's come into him there as an old man, and it came into in the same way that it came into Johnny Cash as a performer. There's a sort of humility that comes with with the age that he did he doesn't have in this film. In this film. He's what? He's 45. He's every inch a Hollywood star. He's every inch what what that means. You're carrying the movie, Charlton. And whatever sort of hamming around you want to do, fella, that's all right by us. So you get like these wonderful sort of cock the head back and laugh and sneering at Landon. <laughs> You've got this wonderful stuff where he's like, you know, pounding the ground with his fists and everything i have to say is hammy as be jesus and I, you know i love charlton hessen but that is overacted to within an inch of its life the whole performance it, there's nothing naturalistic about it it's coming and when you think about it it's 1968 you know we're coming out of the year of of of, of jimmy dean and brando changing everything but then you go and you look at movies from from that time you look at those guys they're just sort of breaking the wall naturalism's only coming out and he's only sort of and he's he's even more old school so I don't know. It, as a performance, it, it leaves quite a lot to be desired, apart from the absolute magnetic star quality of it. And you know, <laughs> he has to have that because he spends most of it walking around in a loincloth. But, <laughs> but you know, at the same time, the the character is bloody fascinating, endlessly fascinating. Yeah, no, so yeah, I agree. He's just a, such an interesting character and different to anything I'd seen at that stage in a film, no doubt. What about yourself, Martin? Yeah, I mean, I think it, which is quite rare for Charlton Heston performance. That this is almost kind of, kind of like, almost kind of countercultural Charlton Heston. And I think that if you look at the year that this came out, nineteen sixty-eight, so you've got, you've got, you know, the Vietnam War, you know, really starting to to sort of develop at this point. Nixon gets elected in late sixty-eight. There's kind of revolution all across Europe. There's there's lots of riots within America at the time. Martin Luther King gets shot. Andy Warhol gets shot in 1968. Robert Kennedy gets shot. It's like a big year for um, the kind of counterculture movement within the States. And you have Charlton Heston playing a character which almost seems like one of those kind of anti-hero sort of performances from the 70s that you associate with maybe Jack Nicholson, 
Robert De Niro, and and, and the, the, those those kind of early Clint Eastwood films as well, where his whole thing in this film is kind of anti-authority, and he has all of that stuff with I think it's I think it's Julian or Julius, where he keeps on encouraging the sort of the, the kind of young chimpanzee not to listen to people that are older. And of course, we look at this now and we think. We know Charlton Heston's an old guy. He kind of, he almost kind of reeks of, of kind of conservative America. But actually, in this film, you wonder how much appeal this film would have had to people that were kind of dodging the draft, people that were protesting against Vietnam War. Because one of the messages that I think would have been more more kind of salient at the time, but maybe lost now, is is just that the the sort of individualism of the film and the lack of respect, not only for the world where he came from, but also the world in which he finds himself in now. And I think that must have kind of resonated to a, to a sort of late 60s audience. But it's weird, it's just weird to have Charlton Heston playing playing that, that type of character. Totally agree. And funnily enough, I, I was watching some of the DVD extras and uh, I think it was Kim Hunter, it may have been, who, who basically said the nickname they gave him on on set was Charlie Hero, and and it's funny because like obviously that is ordinarily that is exactly who you would play, and I know obviously we've said how he he's still a, 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 the hero in this, but some of the things he's coming out with and like the lack of sort of the lack of compassion or any any real sadness for the female astronaut th- there's nothing like that and he's just got contempt for so many things uh, and one of the things that highlights that would you say about countercultural particularly in that time is where where he just laughs at the american flag he's sort of the opposite of you know the the, the, the more of a standard idea of what what an astronaut would be. He's like the opposite in this, and I just love that contrast. Um, obviously, there's so many characters in this who, who, who are interested in different ways. Um, another two of the main characters are Cornelius and Zira. Um, have you got any thoughts on, on their characters? I know it's, it sounds really funny talking about monkeys in, in this way, but have you got any, any thoughts on their characters or the performances of McDowell or Hunter Martin? <laughs> um, I, think, I think before we get on to them, it is important to sort of say about this film, right, that this is, I mean, this is a film called Planet of the Apes, right? So that would have already had my tension because <laughs> it, it sounds like it's like when there's a really old story about how they were trying to get the funding for uh, Zulu and um, the guy who directed Zulu was was having a piss once next to this famous producer called Joseph Levine. And he said, you know, he said, what are you working on at the moment? And he said, I'm trying to get this film going about Rourke's drift, about this battle in South Africa. I'm trying to get funding for it. I'm, I'm having a really bad time. And the producer said, what's it called? And the director said, it's called Zulu. And the producer said, how much money do you want? Because it was such a, it's such a great name, right? And I think Planet of the Apes is a bit like that. It's like, there's, <laughs> at that point, there was no other films 
about <laughs> um, a sort of planet full of apes. So once you've got that title, when you watch this film for the first time, and bearing in mind that it is 1968 and it's now 2017, is that you can really mess that up. It can look, it could, you could look back on that, you know, maybe like people look back on, I don't know, Thunderbirds or something and go, okay, I can see what they were trying to do, but God, it looks, it looks naive and it looks cheap now. But, so when you watch it for the first time, and obviously you see the astronauts, you see them walking through the desert, and you, you must be, there's an element of you where you're thinking, okay, I know there's going to be some apes soon, and maybe you hadn't seen a trailer. <laughs> These apes better look good, because this film's quite good so far. I quite like the characters. Please don't fuck this up when the apes turn up. And I have to say, to me, like it's almost better than the ending is the key scene in the film for me is the bit where they are kind of running through the field and the apes turn up for the first time and they're wearing leather waistcoats and they're on horses and they've got rifles. And I remember watching that for the first time and every time I watched the film and that scene comes along, I think, well, they didn't, they really didn't fuck that up. That's how you make an entrance into a film called Planet of the Apes. And they look, they look really menacing because those initial apes in the field, yeah, they don't have dialogue and stuff like that. Particularly, They just look like they're on horses. It's, like, it's an animal riding another animal. It's kind of weird and it's kind of scary. The film then obviously develops and you get to, you get to meet the Roddy McDowell character, um, and the female chimpanzee, and without sort of loving either of those two characters, I think that look at like you know they don't ruin the film, um, and they are a necessary part of the film because they are the the kind of bridge between Taylor and the uh, apes that run society. And they've, they, you, they have so much kind of dialogue and stuff like that. Um, but they're not... They're, they're a little bit cutesy for me. Like, I don't like... Like, I, I could... If I was... If you edited the film, I would do without the scenes where they kiss each other and stuff, which is just oh, yeah. seem a, bit, a little bit silly. Um, but no, they are... A, they're an important part of the film and they, you know, without them, the film sort of doesn't move forward because they're looking at Taylor from a point of sort of scientific interest where other people just, just, just want to cut his brain out. Um, but I think, I think they're good performances and I think you watch it now still and you think, you know, you're kind of not looking for the sort of, you're sort of not looking for the joins, you accept them for what they are. They don't really look like, you know, chimpanzees, but it's fine. It's fine. They don't have to. They 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 work perfectly well as they are. Yeah, I think I think you're right there uh, with with those and also with with the apes on horseback. I, I think that's key, isn't it? It's it's if if that doesn't if they don't work and obviously the apes the first ones we see don't work then you could quite easily just t- turn that off 
And I think hundred oh, percent. You, you uh, get that scene wrong, and it's and it's film over. Yeah, and definitely. that that <laughs> they got that scene so right. It's yeah. they're they're terrifying. Those those initial apes. They're far more kind of menacing, and uh, they, they have a sort of sense about them, which none of the apes in any of the remakes kind of ever ever uh, just ever have. There's something, there's something, I don't know what it is. I think it's the leather waistcoats, apes in leather. That yeah, uh, does it for me. <laughs> uh, and as you said before, on the horses, just visually there's something about that that's really imposing and unsettling as well. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and I think one of the things as well, linked to what we were talking about then, that was the big concern of uh, of, of the producers, um, that if the apes don't work, then the film is just going to be a bomb, and obviously an expensive bomb at that. And I think they did a, a, a screen test with, I think it was Edward G. Robinson as Dr. Zayas. He didn't end up taking the role in the end, but they did a screen test and seen whether whether it was laughable, essentially, and apparently because that worked, that gave them the confidence then to go ahead. And obviously we were talking earlier about some of the themes in this film, you know, it's such an achievement to be able to use apes in a film and be able to have some of these discussions about, you know, different philosophical things and and it work because, as you rightly pointed out, it could have absolutely been laughable and the idea of any of those things being linked to the film, any of those themes would, would just be crazy. But because it worked so well, obviously it, it succeeded massively. What about yourself? I'm <clears throat> oh, sorry. I think just 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 sort of on that, I think it is a kind of blessing in disguise that they that they probably were nervous about how the apes would come across because it allows them to work on the script, it allows them to work on all the other aspects of the film that they can control. Mm-hmm. And to sort of compare it to Jaws again, I remember reading once about how he could never get that shark to work. And the film was going over budget and everything. And it was during that time when they were trying to make the mechanical shark work that they worked on a lot of the script for, like, Jaws. So those scenes within the sort of boat where they're talking about their skulls and all that sort of stuff, really great moments in Jaws. Mm -hmm. They come about because the shark doesn't work. And and I think that, that you imagine them making Planet of the Apes and they're sitting there a little bit nervous about the apes in a way that the people doing the remakes aren't. Yeah. And you imagine them thinking, well, let's just get everything else right. Yeah. And then hopefully if we, if we do a decent job with the apes, it will be, it'll be fine. So I think that's the best in disguise. Yeah, no, totally, totally agree. It's that whole cliche, but often true about necessity and being the mother of in- invention and also sometimes restrictions helping you to sort of be more creative in another way and I think one of the ones on this it reminds me of is I think the original plan was to have the apes live in a futuristic city with you know flying cars I think if I remember right but definitely a futuristic city and it was the fact that they didn't have the money to pull it off made them go with with what they went with in the end and I, I just think that works so much better than, than the other version would have obviously we'll never know but my instinct would be they what they ended up having to do was was a much better way of going about it. What about yourself, Trev? 
In relation to the uh, the the makeup and the, the 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 two characters you mentioned at the start, yeah, yeah. Well, I, to be honest with you, um, that's a good point that Martin makes. Is that initial impression is kind of all important, and when you see, uh, you know, armed gorillas on horseback, it's that's that leaves quite the impression on you, no matter what age you are. And if that doesn't work out of the gap, then you're in trouble. And I think the gorillas work better than any of the other apes, just on a technical point. Um, you know, you saw that that you refer to that 1966 screen test. I saw it at some stage as well, and. I think it's Edward G. Robinson, as you say, and he's got these horrible mutton chops, and he's playing Doctor Zeus, and you've got uh, Charlton, and he's lounging about in a in a in a safari jacket, and then the two gym, chimps come in. I think one of them's Josh Brolin, and then the girl who ends up playing Nova, Linda Harrison, and you know they only did the bottom half of their faces. And, you know, they, <laughs> they they gave five grand to this screen test to see how it would go, and I mean, you can imagine the eyebrows getting raised left, right, and center because I think a massive thing was like you said please don't laugh at this, you know, uh, maybe laugh with us if we're doing funny stuff or like, uh, again, the phrase that I think Martin used there, the cutesy stuff from, um, from Zeus uh, or from, uh, from um, Zira and Cornelius. Yeah, I get it. You know, you could do without it. Um, I don't know necessarily does it have any negative effect because, you know, the idea was uh, that you sort of, you know, in in an ironic fashion that you humanize them as much as possible so that they're very, very relatable for people. And, you know, the little kiss or whatever, wh- whether you think it's it's a little bit much or whatever, I understand the motivation behind it. I get it completely. Like, But that guy who does the makeup for it, you know, the guy who is ultimately responsible, he used to make prosthetics or whatever in, in his uh, for army veterans, John Chambers. I mean, you know, <laughs> he's responsible for Spock's ears, I believe, as well. This is a guy who's created something, you know, genuinely striking. And, you know, again, you can say maybe the chimp uh, one doesn't work as well as the uh, gorilla or, or or the orangutans or whatever. But to me, uh, the, the two characters, the two actors... Um, they emote and they were they said themselves they had to really overact with their faces so that those gestures will come through and so it is a little bit kind of mimey it's a little bit um the kind of shite i used to see when i went to to various uh uh you know acting uh, uh camps and classes and stuff like that i never lasted any longer in a week at any of those things because it was always go over there and be a tree and i just you know at, at some stage you just you just want to just slam the door and walk out and that sort of actory thing came out very, very much from from Roddy McDowell and from from Kim Hunter. But, you know, they are good actors, the two of them. And Kim Hunter, like last time I, I, I'd seen her was she's Stella, you know, in, in, in Streetcar. That's, you know, that's someone who can do the job well. That's someone who knows how to deal with a, with a raging beast in front of them. Uh, a kind of a, a, a guy in a torn top shouting and roaring. She knows how to deal with that. Uh, and it, it was just interesting uh, from that point of view to, to, when you think about the characters. But that's after the event. I have to say it didn't. It didn't grate with me at all, at all at the start, except that I found their movement a bit mimey, and that was their interpretation of how a chimp moves. Fair enough, fair enough, you know. But but the the effects themselves, I think, uh, you'd have to say was a sort of a glorious success. And if you remember, this is the same year that um, two thousand and one Space Odyssey came out, and I have read definitely read reviews of um, of uh, Kubrick's movie where the review centered around, well, to be fair, 
Shatner's apes are far better than Kubrick's apes, and it's a better film as a result of it. Um, you know, and 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 people mocking and laughing at that opening section of two thousand and one, which does go on a bit. Let's be honest. Um, with the the dawn of man section, not quite the opening section, but the dawn of man section. So already, um, Schaffner and the boys here had one up, and um, I think I think it, it stood to it. You know, it was like thirty three million in the box office at the time, which can't be bad. Yeah, no, de- definitely, and uh, as as we've said, you know, they may not look like apes, but they sort of they capture a certain essence that results in them working, and I think because of that, some of those sorts of cutesy bits that I went particularly mad on either it, it gets away with them whereas if if the sort of makeup was poor then then things would you know it'd already be sinking but then things would push it right 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 under so i think it just about gets away with that because of how good the makeup is well it's about, did you did, did you suspend your disbelief you know did oh, you, totally. it's the key totally. question it always is with, with, with yeah. a movie that's high concept did you suspend Spend your disbelief, and I think from the minute you see the, the boys on horseback with guns, you've done that, and that's that's a win. Yeah, so, I think. I think so, also you have to remember that there is a there's a large section of the film which, looking back on it, is in, is incredibly brave. There's a large section of the film where Charlton Heston is, you know, mute. Mm-hmm, so yeah. the only people talking at that point in the film are, you know, apes. You've got the only the only <laughs> yeah the only sort of human there, and you've taken his voice away from him. And which they do to really great dramatic effect when he then talks again oh, for yeah. the first time. But it see it, it all it just seems like such a high wire act that imagine imagine a kind of script meeting where you have the script and then you've only just introduced the apes and it says and then for the next twenty five minutes, you know, John Heston doesn't have any lines. Yeah, well, that's that's that Martin. That's someone who's really confident in their script, isn't it? I mean, you know, like you mm. say, that's and that's where they start introducing all these ideas, these high concept ideas, like you know that that you know are universal, like religion versus science and the eternal debate. And you've got this lovely irony of the the leader of the society happens to be the key scientist, but also the head of the faith. And the contradiction of that becomes slowly apparent. And you get to see this slowly, you get to see this sort of dissension in the ranks with uh, Zero and Cornelius. And it's a, it's a strong script because like you say, you're looking at a lot of apes talking here and it, it could it could have become farcical. Yeah, I and I think, I, th- I think it's just a really good move that they, that they kind of muted him for that for that 20, 25 minutes, because it does allow you as the audience to kind of just go through the same thing that Taylor's going through, where you're sort of understanding what's going on within this, you know, society. And just from a very simple point of view, you can see that there's, there's kind of three types of apes. There's, there's, you know, I guess they're baboons, there's gorillas and there's chimpanzees. And to give the script over to them, for 20, 25 minutes is, and, and, it, and it just totally works. It totally, totally works. But it must have been a kind of brave thing to do. Yeah, you can imagine a producer, can you, putting so much money in for this big star? And then, as you say, he's not speaking for 25 minutes, and the film's got to be, to some extent anyway, carried by the apes. It, it, it does seem such a risk, but like you've both mentioned, it, it works so well because 
we're in his shoes and the frustration he has is building in us because we want him to be able to show what he can do, that he can speak and that he can think and, you know, and it, it's good because it really puts you in, in their shoes and just, you know, I, I, I love that part of the film and as you so rightly say, Martin, when he finally does get to speak, it has so much more impact because we haven't heard him speak for so long. Obviously, one of the other things that's so memorable about the film is the score by Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, what what did you make of the score, Trev? Yeah, it's 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 particularly good because it's so jarring. I think you know. Um, now let's be honest. At that time, you know, you've an awful. Lot, I, I was I was watching Bullet there recently, and I watched something else. I think I watched the Thomas Crown Affair as well recently, and it was an era of sort of mad, uh, unusual uh, soundtracks and experimental music. And this is experimental, as be Jesus, and and deliberately so. But I think the word that that that, that I use is jarring, and in much the same way as I went to see Dunkirk lately, and an awful lot of people uh, had the hump about that. I don't understand that, and then myself, I thought it was. Uh, tremendous on a lot of on a lot of fronts but one of the things that worked was the fact that Zimmer didn't do his usual sort of um, uh, heaving strings and stuff like that this was noiseless and syncopated sounds and rhythms and sort of awkward jarring uh, um, um, soundscapes and there's a lot of that with Jerry Goldsmith's uh, um, soundtrack as well I suppose the most memorable parts are are you know the 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 cornfield sequence um, in particular, I think that has certain little sounds and sound effects that, you know, everyone remembers. And it, they're the ones that they uh, ape, if you'll excuse the horrible pun, in The Simpsons when they're doing a, when they're doing a, a, a sort of a, a homage stroke satire of it. Um, so, you know, I think it worked really well in that it left you a bit unsettled. And I read somewhere, I can't remember now, but, but he deliberately used unusual um, instruments as well. You know, there was uh, some sort of a ram's horn and various bits and pieces like that. So I think it made a real sort of impact in terms of uh, echoing the, the 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 themes of uncertainty and being unsettled. And then, of course, the lovely build up to the big scene, which I presume we'll talk about eventually. I think that worked very well as well. And yourself, Mark? I think I think kind of you know nailed that, Trevor. There, it's it's a. Uh, I don't think it's ever kind of music that you <laughs> you would sit at home and listen to. It's, I mean, it's not a, it's, it's it isn't a soundtrack, um, but it is these they just these sort of moments of kind of noise that that seems so at odds with, I guess, what you would normally have within, particularly a lot of westerns. I think is when you're having those big kind of landscapes and those those kind of huge sort of vistas it's there's lots of kind of strings it's it's very you know elegant and this is the opposite of that it sounds like at times you know people are, are, are kind of just in the background kind of kind of kind of you know dropping huge panes of glass and so it's kind of weird in that respect but it does give the film a sense of this isn't quite what it seems there's a there's a there's a there's a sense within i think the entire film which i think the, the sort of soundtrack really adds to it is a sense of kind of foreboding and kind of otherworldliness about it which is is kind of unsettling there's something you are unsettled throughout 
Yeah, and I think the soundtrack does a lot to achieve that. Yeah, completely agree with you both. I think, as we mentioned earlier on, obviously the the location the the locations used are obviously Tenerife and places like that. And I think what what's really good about the the score, as you both mentioned, is that sort of unsettling, otherworldly part of it helps to sort of sell this as another planet in a really good way and also gives you that as you say it takes it's i think it's a, over half an hour before we come to any apes in the film but that gives you that as you say that constant sense of foreboding obviously you know the apes are coming but it makes the planet even more sort of scary and unsettling than it would be just off knowing the apes are coming just because it's you know those sort of noises and then things like the scarecrows really really put you on edge in a, in a really good way obviously i'm aware of the time uh, so i'm just gonna we would normally go through a few of the scenes but instead of that i'll probably just ask you both if there's other than the end scene that we'll look at in a moment are there any other scenes that particularly stand out for you uh, please martin um i think i mean i think the sort of big scenes for me are, are the introduction of the apes which i've mentioned I really kind of like the scenes with Dr. Zaius where, you know, you as the audience kind of know that he's sort of on to something and that he is more aware than anyone else. So you do start to think, well, what's, what's he, you know, scared of? You know, why are they so scared of Taylor? So I think the scene where Taylor writes in the sand and then he has that fight and... Um, you know, Dr. Zayas sees that Taylor has been able to write in the sand, but then he kind of rubs that out. I think is a, is a good scene in the sense of, you know, you get to see something as the audience that the, that the rest of the characters in the film don't quite yet know. And, of course, this, this then gets explained when they go out to the, um, you know, Forbidden Zone and they go to that cave. And I just think, like, I really like that whole scene within the cave where, um, you know, and at this point I have not worked out the ending because I'm not, you know, I, I just I just enjoy films within their moment. But but there's a there's a sense of okay, so this entire time, you know, Doctor Zayas has known about this cave and the, and the kind of dull and the sort of false teeth. And there's been, and, and, and he's been hiding that. And then of course he tries to blow the cave up. So I think just that sense of, you know, without it, it, it kind of giving the end in a way, there's a few scenes within the film where it's sort of painting a little picture, even when he kind of gets the paper airplane and he crumples it up. It's it's constantly telling you there's something going to happen here, and this and and like this guy knows what it is. I think they're the they're the scenes that I think are the, the sort of really sort of stick with me. Yeah, I lo- love all those bits and and Zayas's character and uh, you know I, I love that line as well where he basically says you may not like what you'll find and it's sort of you know the the showing the full extent of his knowledge of, of what's to come for, for Taylor and just, yeah, just a very interesting character. And 
you know, uh, so, some great scenes you mentioned there. What about yourself, Trevor? Is there any scenes we haven't touched on that stand out for you at all? Yeah, well, it's kind of moments, isn't it? Um, I suppose in terms of moments, one thing that always stayed with me is I love that little scene where, and it's almost like a throwaway detail where the gorillas have uh, decided to take a photo of their um, prey that they've caught, like a, a great white hunter type uh, traditional pick that we've all seen with the the old fashioned camera and even just that kind of you know feel of the old tech. Um, you know, nothing. There's no real logic to that whole society in terms of how they drew it together, and the the there's no timeline to it that makes any sense at all. Uh, but it just kind of works for some strange reason. Like the idea of a camera, that particular type of rifle, the fact that they're on horseback, the fact that they're living in some, you know, actual uh, based on a, a you know a troglodyte Turkish village that actually exists. None of those things kind of add up. But then you see those little moments, and that one really stood out for me. It was something. I loved the I loved the, the 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 sledgehammer irony of it. I liked as well the little scene between um, Isaias and uh, is it Lucius at the end, where you know it's kind of Lucius is that like Martin referred to earlier on that kind of uh, he's been spurred on by by Taylor's sort of iconoclastic you know uh, they don't don't trust anyone over thirty all that stuff, and and Lucius says something like about. Um, Oh, what is it? You know, why must knowledge stand still or something like that? What about the future? And Zayas just goes, I think I may have just saved it for you. You know, and I love that as well because, you know, it 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 it's it's a it's uh, it, it kind of it foreshadows the idea of these guys are dangerous and I'm keeping you safe. And I suppose the big scene that we didn't refer to much that really had the essence of all those ideas I spoke about right back at the start was that courtroom scene. I loved all that. I loved the idea of the statue of the lawgiver in the background, the sacred scrolls and talking about the forbidden zone and all that. And it's got all those kind of um, stereotypes of religion, everything that you see in any, any religious paradigm is there. And it's just, I, I, that really spoke to me, I have to say, and made me start asking questions about, you know, I was brought up a really, really, really traditional Catholic. And even from that stage, you start asking funny questions, but really, like, this, this seems like a story. And you see all the parallels with other stories. And I have to say that resonated very, very strongly with me. And, you know, even at one stage, Zeus calls Cornelius an, an apostate. And, you know, having seen Scorsese's little movie there recently as well, all these things kind of come together in your head. So, yeah, that was that was very powerful for me in terms of those ideas that we spoke about before. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a big fan of that uh, trial scene as well. And, you know, there's something powerful about it, particularly when you, you first watch it and seeing, you know, like any sort of belief taken to extremes. It was so powerful seeing, you know, how little anything he had to say meant to them. No matter what he said, he couldn't win. You know, when you watch it for the first time, you're hoping he can talk his way uh, to get some sort of reason from from these uh, people, or should I say, orangutans, I don't know. But, you know, you're hoping that he can sort of reason with them. And it just becomes clear right throughout that trial scene that there is nothing he can say or do that will in any way reach them because their their level of, of fear and they just don't want to believe. And obviously in Zeus's case, he knows the real the real truth. And but that's 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 that that's why it resonates so much, like, you know, with with, with audiences who watch it today, because 
all around the world, you've all these, you know, just, you know, ideologies, these, you know, uh, everyone got their own version of, of a story that they believe in. And these really firm ideologies and this 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 hatred and this uh, intolerance that we see everywhere. And all of those themes are there shouting at you from that film, um, you know, and of course they would be because, you know, you're not far out of, you know, Bay of Pigs and Cuban Missile Crisis and Reds Under the Bed and Duck and Cover and all that kind of nonsense. And here we are again, you know. No. Yeah. Did you know there was a there's a weird thing that um that the that the actors that were made up as orangutans and the actors that were made up as gorillas and the actors that were made up as chimps, when they weren't like filming, when they were having when they were just having some downtime, they all kind of hang out together <laughs> in their own kind of ape species this is true it wasn't planned it just happened that way did they go were they going method do you think martin (laughs) (laughs) so all of the orangutans kind of just just sort of hung out with each other and all the chimpanzees (laughs) hung out with each other and i think if you're if you're making that film and you're sort of you're walking into the canteen and Mm. it's like an orangutan table and a gorilla table i think you're thinking what the fuck's going this, well, here, here's a question is, for you. Here's a question for you, Martin. Where, where would you go? I, I think the grills would be great, lads. <laughs> I think, you know, I would... I think it's like... <laughs> if I could have any part in this film, I said it's, it's the first gorilla on the horse. That's yeah. that's like a... I mean, you would never, you'd not be known for it, but what a part that would be. But it is weird that, that, like, talking about some of the themes of the film that, I guess, unbeknown to the sort of actors, they're then kind of playing that out yeah, and th- they're just hanging around with, with like, so there was no cross pollination of, of the ape species amongst the actors when they were just hanging out between takes. That's pretty weird. Yeah. It's fascinating because I know obviously in a lot of films, they sort of encourage that type of thing to build up sort of the sort of enmity or, or difference differences within groups but as you say with it coming about completely naturally it just takes mm. it to another level doesn't it it's just fascinating about you know just so human that we just naturally put ourselves into certain groups and then that changes things and now it's it's fascinating that and I must say that reminds me of it's also one of them films that I think this is another reason why it's so popular with the people who absolutely adore it. It's one of them films that's got a great story behind it as well, you know, in terms of how it came to be made and behind the scenes stuff like that. And I think that that's definitely part yeah. of it. I think it, it kind of reminds me of like various England squads where the sort of Liverpool players would all hang out and the United yeah. players would all hang out. You know, there's a lesson in Planet of the Apes, which, I don't know, England might have won some more tournaments. (laughs) They need more gorillas. (laughs) People followed that that lesson. Maybe that's what they should do in the World Cup. Just watch Planet of the Apes first. I think Mm. think you've hit on something. I mean, it is unorthodox, Joe. I'll give you that. (laughs) But, you know, it's... We may as well try it. Why not? What's the problem? Yeah, try everything else. What's the worst oh. that's going to happen? They just got to watch a good film. <laughs> Love it. I'm, I'm glad you, you've 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 mentioned that because you know, in terms of humour and things, it, it, that's another thing from the film that 
as well, it, obviously, it's quite a serious film, but there are, you know, obviously, you've mentioned most of the scenes I would have mentioned, but I like the little bits of hu- humour, like uh, there's a bit where the at the trial, I think um, the three orangutans do do the do the the expressions of um, is see no evil, hear mm. no evil, speak no evil, little things like that, or you know where they'll say lines like you know human see, human do, little bits like that. It, it's just got a little bit of everything. This film for me, obviously, uh, we've mentioned it so much uh, that ending of the film, um, and you've touched on it a little bit both years, but. Obviously, it's so iconic. What are your thoughts on, on that ending, Trev? And did it did it take you unawares the first time, or had it been spoiled? Or no, well, I was I was too young and naive to have had and and an internet free to have had any exposure to it all. So I got I was a perfect candidate for the the ending blowing me away, and that's why I I, I was stressing early on that. Of course, that's incredible, and it's it, it hits you right between the eyes. But th- all the other other ideas in it stayed with me as well, you know. But the the ending itself, like I mean, yeah, it's iconic in every single way that you can imagine. The cinematography is really interesting, kind of inventive with the with the the zooms and the um the pans across the the torch and and the, and the 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 the, uh, the spikes on the crown and everything like that and it's it's tremendous yeah I like that too the soundtrack and then the big reveal and of course it's stunning it's stunning cinema it's a, a moment of stunning cinema and you'd expect no less from you know a writer who's been responsible for in Rod Serling who's been responsible for so many uh, fantastic uh, uh, moments of 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 shock and future shock in uh, in 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 uh, in his TV show which 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 we would be well aware of but i think the thing with me about this key scene and I'm j- just to be a bit contrary about it is that ironically every time i see the film it's the thing that kind of impresses me less and less. And it's not because of a lack of impact. All those other things are wonderful. But we get down to the end of it, and we, I come back to El Chuckles um, uh, himself, and there's something about that performance, you know, that I, I used to do a kind of a piss take of it myself um, back in the day just for the crack um, to entertain people because I had a very decent impression of of El Chuckles Heston at one stage. And I get down the ground and do the whole fist beating into the thing and you know god damn you all to hell and it's just so ham that you know it's kind of hard to, to to have the full weight of it ever happen again the first time i saw it oh man it's so powerful probably the second time too but after that all i could see was all i could see was in a kind of arrogant way yeah i'd do better than chuckles there i think you know but <laughs> but but you know that's 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 uh that's just by the by yeah no but look it's it's an iconic moment in cinema, cinema history for it has everything the the combination of the, the of what you see of the 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 sort of um bravura aspect of the of the cinematography and the soundtrack and the acting and the reveal it's it's a perfect storm uh, what about yourself martin i know obviously you've touched on it earlier on but i, I take it from what you were saying it it clearly took you one away is that ending uh, yes, I had no, I had no kind of knowledge, I think, of of the end of the film. I mean, I kind of watched it sort of pre-internet and you know all of that sort of stuff. So I, I, I think I was just sort of dawdling along watching the film as I said, and then the sort of ending happened. And I would, and you know what, you just hope that you know, similar to sort of Psycho, you just hope that people watch that stuff 
and the, 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 that those kind of spoilers just don't sort of seep through because there is there is something kind of great about sort of coming to that for the first time and having no idea that that's going to happen and and they sort of they they kind of do it so well. I mean, it is I think it's sort of similar to the kind of shower scene in Psycho in that it's just it's it is a moment in cinema which. You know, I've seen that ending many, many, many times, and they 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 just do it, I think, really perfectly. Where you know he thinks that he's riding off into the sunset, with, you know, with his girl, and he thinks he's kind of won. Yeah. And you you have this soundtrack kind of telling you that maybe he hasn't. You have the words of Dr. Zayas where, you know, he's already said that he, I don't think he's going to like what he finds and all that sort of stuff. So in, for, for a couple of minutes, you are thinking, what the fuck's going to happen here? What can you possibly... Again, it comes back to, I think, some of the kind of bravery of the film is they've set that up and you're like, well, what, what on earth could he possibly find round the corner which is going to make all of this worthwhile all of the kind of all of the sense of foreboding and the, the the i've just saved you from the future and all of this sort of stuff and it's just simply the statue of liberty that's it and but the way they show it by the little glimpse of the torch first um then the kind of spikes and at that point you don't i don't know i mean i can't remember i can't remember exactly when but I, I don't think it's quite clear at that point um, that it is the Statue of Liberty. Of course, when you watch it back now, you're like, okay, I'm, I know what this is. But just the fact that the statue is then sort of submerged into the ground, it's kind of sunken. And I can't think of any other sort of, you know, monument from Earth that they could have used that would have had the same effect. So not only did they choose exactly, I think there were like three endings that they could have had. I'm not sure what the other two were, but, but they definitely chose the right one and they did it in a way, which I think was just sort of perfectly done in its sort of gradual reveal. And it's just, a, it's something that everyone can recognize. And it's that, that and it, it, and at that point you just kind of, you just kind of get what's happened before he even says the, you blew it up, you fools, and all of that sort of stuff. And you're like, fuck, what have I just watched for the last one and a half hours? He's been on Earth the whole time. Fucking hell. It's a, <laughs> you know, it, I think it's just a great, great ending. It, it sort of elevates the film into the, a, a, a much, much better film. And, it, and I, mean, I, I don't know if we've got time to talk about the sequels, but... The the only the, the I don't think the sequels are in of themselves great films, but it's that ending and what it reveals that that does then make you watch them and think, okay, well I would like to know a little bit more about how this happened and this whole you know it, it's it's it it kind of gives everything a new lease of life the film that you've just seen and the sequels that you're about to sit through. Yeah, no, to- totally agree. It's I think that's a 
a great place to end really here but I've got one last thing to say uh, Trev mentioned you know one of his friends earlier on and I can remember a guy I worked with and sometimes you have like this people who just see things in in a different way to everyone else and I'm someone obviously like yourselves I love me films I get wrapped up in them and sometimes I, I take them too seriously or, or the, things like that and uh, I, I was in a conversation once with a few people and the ending of this film came up and I was asking again, you know, was everyone, you know, surprised by the ending? And, uh, you know, when someone says something, that just takes you, takes you unawares. And this guy piped up, he goes, uh, it was obvious they were on Earth. And I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, why was it obvious they were on Earth? And he went, well, why would they all speak in English? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I don't know why it's it's always tickled me since then, you know. Sometimes people just see something in a different way. But yeah, he had a toast. Yeah, it's so I think exactly. I think that those people that try to guess endings <laughs> and those people that think they're like above the twist and they've they are the worst people in the world and they shouldn't <laughs> be watching right? films. Yeah, <laughs> they should not be watching films. You just yeah. have to just enjoy that stuff, exactly. and there's no, there's nothing to be superior about. By I'm not I'm not saying this is what your friend did. No. Your, as, no, to be no. honest, your friend sounds a bit mad. Um, <laughs> but there are there are people who who watch a film like this and they take it as a challenge to see if they right. they they can't if to, they almost don't like the idea that the film will get one over on them. And that's what the film's trying to do. And you should play your part in that by just enjoying the film. Yeah. No, to- totally agree. Oh, well, I'd just like to thank you both for coming on and giving you time. I've loved uh, talking to you both. Where can people find more, more of your work, Martin? About the Planet of the Apes. I have no idea about the Planet of the Apes. Well, I have a book that's coming out on September the 7th. Um, you can just Google that. It's called Ruth and Martin's Album Club, and it's by me, Martin Fitzgerald. Um, yeah, you can do that. You can you can buy you can buy that book. That would be good. If not, you can follow me on sort of Twitter or just follow me. I live in Nottingham. You can just follow me around Nottingham <laughs> if you want. And, That's um, not something you want to put out there on a card, Martin. I mean, it depends. It all depends. <laughs> who these people are you know <laughs> um, so but yeah that's I mean basically buy the book that's a good start or or, or don't <laughs> fair <laughs> play I'd, I'd thoroughly recommend I don't know if, if anyone hasn't read either Ram Album Club or Ram JFK Club on the internet they should check them out absolutely excellent work and I'm sure the book will be more of the same, if not even better, if that's possible. Um, what about it's yourself? Possible. Joe, it's possible. <laughs> I like it. I like it. That's what I like to hear. And yourself, Trev? Uh, just get over to anfieldindex.com. I'm basically sort of 
unfortunately everywhere god love them at the moment i'm hosting the main show i'm hosting match uh, review with jan mulby of doing an interview show again there's one out with mulby a two-parter recently that i'm very very happy with and very proud of and the man himself's a gem yeah all over that i do my own ai audible show where i read the articles of the writers on the website so there's a lot going on joe that if people want to get to they'll get all the links on uh twitter on anfield index or on danny trev um on twitter as well yeah, for, fully recommend all of those things, and in particular that Jan Mulby interview. You know, where else can you get someone who's been in the Daglish era in the 80s, but also at Ajax with the likes of Cruyff, Van Basten and Reichard, and he just, it's just a great interview, so please give that a listen, and if you'd like to check out any other episodes of Movie Night, um, you can either you'll get them on my Twitter at JoeSimpson79 or at AI Movie Night, and they're all on the AI app. So thanks very much, everyone, for listening, and thanks again to my two guests. Oh, my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. Finally. Really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.